morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out. Tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. Today is already week six of our series, Not That Kind of Christian. And we want to take the positive approach here. We want to be known by what we're for, not by what we're against. And at the same time, when we're looking for a title for the series, we all know what we're talking about when we say not that kind of Christian. We can, we can picture that kind of Christian that we see who is often the most vocal person coming off as judgmental and the moral police of society, maybe resorting to political authoritarianism to try to preserve their culture and, and force the rest of the country to live according to their religion. They may not value diversity etc. And so we don't want to be that kind of Christian. We believe there's another way to follow Jesus Christ and and the Jesus we see in the Gospels. And so that's what we're proclaiming in this series, that we want to follow the real Jesus we see in the Gospels. And it's Super Bowl Sunday. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, I promise we'll be done here uh, before the game starts. And in the halftime entertainment tonight, is Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And it reminded me when I was a teenager, I used to play basketball with my, my friends up the road. And this is in rural Ohio where our houses were surrounded by farms. And while we played basketball out in the driveway, we listened to Metallica, Nirvana, and Dr. Dre. And so we were lily white country boys singing Ain't Nothing But a G Thang Baby having no idea what we, were, what we were talking about, had no idea what Compton was or the LBC. And, but we loved it though, we knew it was cool. And it reminded me as we talk about our topic today, the history of American Christianity and race, that I wonder how many people like me in my generation loved that music, but they didn't care to understand where it came from. It seems like as a country that maybe we've gone backwards in some ways over the last few years. And now that may not be the case as Chris Rock said, nothing has changed. It's just, it's now that we have cell phones and we can see on video what has been the experience of people of color all along. But sometimes it just seems like we've gone backwards over the past few years. And, and today we're talking about how Christianity has Uh, interacted with race throughout American history. And I I want to let you know here as we begin, I want you to know that I know that I am completely unqualified to talk about this subject. I'm a wasp. I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, male, pastor. I have not experienced racism. Uh, I have benefited from the systems that are set up here in the United States. And so I feel that personally, I feel unqualified to talk about this. At the same time, there is something that I can share as a pastor. I know Christian history, I know American history, and perhaps more importantly than that, I'm a white guy who grew up in an environment where racism was tolerated, if not expected at times. There were no people of color in my environment as I grew up. And by the grace of God, I've been able to meet people and and learn, and my eyes have been opened. And so I can share from the perspective of a white man who sees things differently than the area that that I came from. And so 
somebody from my background can, can learn and grow and be able to see life through somebody else's perspective. And that's what we're talking about today. I read a story this week about a Russian museum security guard who was in charge of, of, of course, guarding this particular section of the museum where there were paintings. And there was a, a painting from the 1930s that showed uh, three torsos and heads with hair but no facial features. The painting was insured for a million dollars. And when he guarded this painting, he apparently, I guess they, they caught him on video, he drew eyes with a ballpoint pen onto the faces of these paintings. They caught him doing it and he said he was bored. So he decided to add his own touches to these historic paintings. He just wanted to revise the paintings a little bit, I guess. And it seems like there are people in America now who want to revise our history. They want to add their own touches or even whitewash American history when it comes to race. Over the past several years, we've lived in a, in a, a political movement that is made up of this renewed race-based nationalistic fervor where it's, there are people who, who apparently don't want to live in a multicultural country. They don't want to live in a diverse America. They want to choose nationalism over multiculturalism. They're saying the quiet part out loud now, sometimes uh, making overtly racist statements. They feel the permission to do that. My guess is that some of you who are watching would not consider yourselves particularly liberal people. But over the past few years, you've seen what's happening and, and you've thought to yourself, wait, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of the ugliness that I see of promoting racism or pretending that it didn't exist in whitewashing history. 2020 saw a change in the way Americans view race. The video of George Floyd's murder did something in America. And then we saw the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and, and, and heard about the killing of Breonna Taylor and Asian Americans were attacked during the, the racist rhetoric connected to COVID-19. And Latinos always bear the brunt of anti-immigration uh, feelings in the United States. And this, this, re, this renewed interest in, in racial justice in 2020 was followed in 2021 by people showing up at school board meetings all over the country and protesting this thing called critical race theory. And these are elementary school, you know, uh, church board or, or school board meetings that they're showing up to and they're demanding that the children not learn about ra critical race theory in their schools. And of course, you probably know that almost no public school system in the United States teaches critical race theory. There were parents showing up at, at um, Chandler School Board meetings and the Chandler City Council meeting where I live here. And the police had to escort them out of the council meeting at one point demanding you know, that, they, that critical race theory not be taught in Chandler schools. And, and the school board president said critical race theory is not taught in Chandler schools. And this happened all over Arizona and, and all over the country. It came out that a lot of those folks were political plants. They weren't even parents in that district, but they, they wanted to show up and, and protest CRT because it's the latest 
boogeyman created by some parts of the media to gin up animus in people who swear they're not racist, but their most important motivating factor is white, white grievance. And we just live in this time where we're seeing the ugliness of racism presented in stark contrast to the beauty of people trying to work for equality and having their eyes opened and seeing things in a new way and wanting to live up to the ideals of our Declaration of Independence and, and create a better world uh, for our kids and for all of us. And now in addition to anti-black racism, of course, 9-11 was followed by a, an upsurge of violence against people thought to be Arab or Muslim. And then towards Latinos here in Arizona, SB 1070 is a law passed in 2010 that is the so-called show your papers law, where if a person was suspected of being an, an illegal immigrant, the police could, could demand their papers, their documentation, and if they couldn't show it, then, then they could be uh, you know, placed under arrest. And so there were Latino people who felt targeted, that they would be the victims of racial profiling. And, and part of that, that law was struck down, thankfully, by the U.S. Supreme Court. And then, as I mentioned, COVID-19 brought an upsurge in anti-Asian violence. The FBI found that anti-Asian hate crimes rose 73% from 2019 to 2020. You've probably seen viral videos of, of Asian Americans being attacked. Just a few weeks ago, a 40-year-old woman was pushed to her death in front of a subway train in New York City. And, and there is a movement towards nationalism all over the world and there are people who want to rewrite American history and, and pretend that racism has not been an issue in American history. Now, as I reflect on this, um, recently my wife and I talk about, uh, talked about the fact that next month we will have been here in the Valley for 10 years. We moved here in March of, of 2012 and it's hard to believe that a, that a decade has passed. And, and I've met hundreds of people during that time who were at various places on their spiritual journey, most of them who were coming out of more conservative evangelical churches, and, and they realized they had questions about that. And some of those people were wrestling with, with the realization that, why did my parents raise me in environments that, that stifled questions and sometimes taught me to view people of color, people who are LGBTQ as different or as the enemy. And they talked about Jesus. And, and of course, Jesus says that, that the greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbor and, and, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why would my, my parents raise me in an environment where clearly that wasn't practiced, where, where the words of Jesus were not practiced? It just, it, it just seems so different. Why, why, why was I raised in environments like this? Some of you came to that kind of a community as an adult because it was attractive to you for some other, you know, some reasons. And, and now you look back you know, to earlier parts of your life and you think, why, was, why did I do that? Why was I a part of that? And, and for some people, the, the cognitive dissonance throws them into this, this kind of period of deconstruction in their lives where they're just... They feel lied to and they feel angry and hurt and, and betrayed and they're trying to work out what they believe and, and just trying to make sense of their spiritual background. Now, because that's such an emotional journey, it's hard to see clearly. And it can take months or years to get to a place of clarity where 
a person can look back on that, that spiritual environment they were a part of and, and they can realize, yes, I was a part of churches that talked about Jesus and so on, but, but really it was informed by its culture. It was a part of a culture that believed certain things and about diversity and, 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 and orientation and race and ethnicity. And then they, they made their, their religion fit that. Now, of course, there are troubling statements in the Bible and you can have the argument, was it you know, the chicken or the egg? What, what came first? But it seems like there are cultural groups in America who will baptize their own beliefs and make their religion fit their beliefs. And, and for some younger people, I've had conversations like, you know, after they've been wrestling for a while, you know, it looks like your parents were a part of a cultural group where that, that was what was required to be in the in crowd. That they maintained certain beliefs and prejudices and they made their religion fit into that. And, and you realize that. You were able to see what was happening and now your journey has been coming out of that and making sense of your faith, you know, related to an environment like that. And, and so you've heard of the Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It's obvious when we look at American history and American Christianity and race that we see a tale of two Christianities. That American Christians have both supported and opposed racism. That American Christians have both supported and opposed racial equality. There have been American Christians on both sides for equality and against it. Now, one of the things that's most disturbing about our time is the history between, or one of the things that's most disturbing about our time is the relationship between white Christians and race now in 2022 America. And over the past few years, there was a a survey connected by P, or there was a survey, sorry, conducted by PRRI in 2018 that found that white Christians, including evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, and Catholics, are almost twice as likely as religiously unaffiliated whites to say the killings of black men by police are isolated incidents rather than part of a pattern. 71% of white evangelicals said this compared to 33% of religiously unaffiliated Americans. And then I have a, a graph to show you from that survey. 51% of white evangelicals favored a law preventing refugees from entering the country compared to 27% of religiously unaffiliated Americans. 86% of white evangelical Protestants see monuments to Confederate soldiers more as a symbol of Southern pride than a symbol of racism. Now, by contrast, only 45% of white religiously unaffiliated Americans agree with that sentiment. White Christian nationalism is the belief that God gave America to white Christians so that white Christians should hold political power. In their book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, uh, these sociologists who are the authors of the book found that 20% of Americans strongly embrace white Christian nationalism. They believe things like it's too easy to vote in the United States. They want to make it harder to vote and they support laws that make it more difficult to vote in historically uh, minority race neighborhoods. Now, reflecting on, on their findings, 
Uh, one of the authors, Andrew Whitehead, wrote an article in Time.com uh, Time called The Growing Anti-Democratic Threat of Christian Nationalism in the U.S. And he writes, the relationship between Christian nationalism and anti-democratic attitudes has a long history in this country. Limiting access to voting and employing violence in order to disrupt the democratic process are not aberrations. After the Civil War and throughout the years of Jim Crow, Christian leaders routinely provided the theological arguments needed to rationalize limiting black Americans' access to participation in the democratic process. They explicitly tied these efforts to their desire to protect the purity of a so-called Christian nation. By last spring, 47 states saw legislation introduced to limit voting rights based on false claims of voter fraud. History is not something that happened a long time ago. We are living in history right now. Our time is just a, a continuation of history. Everything that's happened before our time, when racial minorities have been barred from the political process. And of course, there are eras of our history where we saw this most prominently. So as we think about the history of, of American Christianity and race, we start with colonialism. Right now, I'm sitting four and a half miles north of a Native American reservation. We are living in history. Now, of course, European Christians began resettling native lands here in North America in the 1600s, and, and they took land from Native Americans who lived here first. Those Native Americans were referred to as the Indian problem. And the first strategy was to, to convert them to Christianity and make them as much like Europeans as possible. And even though some Native Americans did convert, by the 1830s, the Trail of Tears was the route that forced Natives uh, to travel uh, as they were displaced by President Andrew Jackson from their ancestral lands in the south to the western United States. He called it Indian removal. There were not enough people in America of conscience to prevent this from happening. Of course there were people in America who considered themselves Christians and saw the injustice of the way that Native Americans were being treated, but there weren't enough of them. Their voices weren't loud enough. It's important to point out that there were people, though, who spoke up for justice. A few weeks ago, we talked about Roger Williams, who was the first uh, Baptist pastor in America, or he started the first Baptist church in America in Providence, Rhode Island. He lived in Puritan New England first, but he was kicked out of the region because he said, we should buy land from Native Americans, not just take it from them, we should buy land from them. He was kicked out. And he founded Providence, Rhode Island based on religious equality and the separation of church and state. The first Baptist church in America was for the separation of church and state. So there were Christians who spoke out against injustice. Once again, it's a tale of two Christianities. There just weren't enough of them. And then we move on to slavery and reconstruction. Also in the 1600s, the first slaves were brought to the Americans or the Americas. And there were Americans who opposed slavery from the start, but there weren't enough of them. You probably know that, that Christian slaveholders and supporters of slavery quoted the Bible to support slavery. Slaveholders paid pastors' salaries in the South, and the pastor quoted the Bible 
to, to support the institution of slavery. Southern preachers justified slavery with what was called the curse of Ham. And it comes from Genesis chapter 9. Ham was one of Noah's sons in the Old Testament, and he sees his father naked. It's, it's a story that's mysterious and difficult to interpret anyway. And Abraham curses the Canaanites, which were the enemies of the children of Israel at that time. And in this passage, his, his son Ham wasn't cursed, and there was nothing said about people of color in this passage. But slave masters and the preachers they paid used this so-called curse of Ham to say that it was Africans who were cursed and therefore should be enslaved because the Bible prophesied that they would be cursed. The Bible in no way whatsoever says that. It's an awful, terrible misreading of something that has nothing to do with people of color. And Ham wasn't even cursed in Genesis chapter 9. It's just this off-the-wall interpretation. But it was the primary biblical justification used to support the enslavement of black people in the South, in the United States. Up until the, up until the present time, there are still people who will cite the curse of Ham. I've heard people in my extended family refer to the curse of Ham. It's this awful, terrible way that the Bible was misused to support slavery. Now, there are other passages that were used because the Bible assumes the existence of slavery. The biblical books were written, well, the New Testament in the time of the Roman Empire when slavery was practiced. When the Apostle Paul writes, it wouldn't be for another 1,800 years before slavery began uh, uh, being made illegal in, in various parts of the world. And, and there are two Christianities because there are Christians who read their prejudices into the Bible and then claim that the Bible supports their prejudices. Do you see how that works? They read the Bible in such a way that they, they read their own views into it and then they claim that the Bible is inerrant and they have this literal reading of the Bible so they can read their prejudices into it and then claim that the Bible supports their prejudices and say, well, it's right there. God, God feels the way we do. It just so happens that God agrees with us about, about our prejudices. And, and there were uh, slave masters and their preachers who believed that slavery was divinely inspired by God. For example, in 1823, an Episcopal clergyman in South Carolina named Frederick Dalco wrote a pamphlet using the Bible to justify enslaving black people. He used the curse of Ham, and then he wrote, The prophecy of Noah was to be fulfilled, not in the individuals named, but nationally in their descendants. Canaan's whole race was under the malediction. These people were particularly wicked and obnoxious to the wrath of God. The present condition of the African is inevitable. All efforts to extinguish black slavery are idle. I want you to see how distorted and twisted and evil this way of using the Bible is. First of all, they read their prejudices into the Bible 
And that's how they justified enslaving Africans. And then they pointed at slavery and said, this is proof that this prophecy was fulfilled. That's how prejudice and circular arguments misuse the Bible and create this tale of two Christianities where you have Christians who support inequality and you have Christians who support equality. It begins in the way they read the Bible, which causes us to ask, how is the Bible being used today to view some folks as unequal and subjugate some people. We're living in history. I want to share the words of another Frederick, uh, Frederick Douglass, who was a black man born into slavery in Maryland in 1818. And the exact date of his birth is unknown, but he chose to celebrate his birthday on February 14th because his mother called him her little Valentine. So Valentine's Day is tomorrow and we can, we can celebrate the birthday of Frederick Douglass. At 20 years old, he escaped slavery and he rose to prominence as an orator, an abolitionist, and an African Methodist Episcopal preacher. He considered joining the Methodist church but found it to be segregated. And he also supported women's suffrage. He supported women's right to vote, not just looking out for his own rights, but he was thinking about the rights of others. And one of his best known quotes refers to the Christianity of this land, the way that he saw some of the most vocal self-professing Christians speaking out for slavery and for inequality. Frederick Douglass said this, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Maybe you feel the same way. That's what this series is about. Frederick Douglass said essentially, I don't want to be that kind of Christian. I want to be the kind of Christian that follows Jesus Christ. And maybe you look around at what's going on in America and, and you would echo the words of Frederick Douglass and say, I see the widest possible difference between the kind of Christianity I see so much around me and the kind of Christianity of Jesus in the Gospels. And I want to follow the real Jesus. Now, there were white abolitionist Christians like William Wilberforce and Charles Finney, uh, Finney and Elizabeth Hyrick, Francis Wright and Elizabeth Margaret Chandler, who wrote uh, an incredibly moving poem called The Slave Ship. And, and they saw slavery as evil and they called for its immediate end. And their efforts eventually led to emancipation. So there were both black and white Christians who were ab abolitionists. It's just that their voices, voices took so long to end the institution of slavery. Now, of course, you see prejudice against Asian Americans and Latinos in the anti-immigration movements in American history. Epithets like uh, the Chinese heathen and the Hindu peril have been used to demonize Asian people as they immigrated to America and Asians who were born in America and are every bit as American as anybody else will hear slander from people who hold Asian American prejudice. And of course, 
now uh, Latinos are demonized for illegal immigration. Uh, About eight years ago, I remember I got a call from a lady who uh, was a Mexican-American who had immigrated here as a child and become an American citizen. And she had been a part of, of an evangelical church for years. And she called because we had the, the, the church phone number on the website. She called and she said that because of the, the way that the United States was moving politically, she realized that there were people in her church who were starting to look at her differently. She had had great relationships with them before. But she said she could start to feel that a lot of the the white evangelical Christians in her church were starting to look at her and treat her differently as a Mexican-American. She said she, she had a sense of humor about it. We had a good conversation, but she said, they're treating me like I just climbed over the wall. And, and she said, I don't think I can be a part of this church community. And I, I'm, I'm calling your church to ask if your church would be accepting of me as, as, a, as a Mexican-American woman. Can you believe that? After years of being a part of a church, because of the political winds in the United States, this renewed anti-immigration movement, she no longer felt welcome in her church. Now, of course, we see the same tale of two Christianities in in Jim Crow and the civil rights era in the 1960s. Uh, Segregation laws in the South and and unfair farm labor practices in the West led Martin Luther King Jr. and Cesar Chavez to speak up against injustice. And, And they were both inspired by their faith. Martin Luther King Jr., was a Baptist pastor. Cesar Chavez was a a devout Catholic. And the book Bad Faith by a professor named Randall Balmer tells the story of of the origins of the current religious right in America, that the religious right had its roots in segregationist churches in the South. And, And when the federal government integrated schools in the 1960s, there were some white evangelical churches in the South who started quote unquote Christian schools. They just happened to be whites-only schools. Their way of responding to the public schools being integrated was to start their own private Christian whites-only schools. They claimed to be known, or they came to be known as segregation academies. Jerry Falwell founded Lynchburg Christian Academy in 1967 as a whites-only school. He went on to found Liberty University in 1971. Bob Jones University is another famous um, college that that was segregated. And eventually the federal government said, if you're going to have a whites only school, we're going to remove your tax exempt status. And that kicked off a a political movement among some white evangelicals to get involved in politics. And so much of what what we see now in right-wing politics had its birth in the segregationist South. And to give you an idea of how some of the most visible Christian leaders acted in that time, after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Wheaton College, which is a a prominent evangelical school near Chicago, hosted a a memorial service for Dr. King. And so you had evangelicals who wanted to honor his life and hosted a memorial service for him. And then you had other evangelical Christians who were very much against that. So 
There was a pastor named Tim LaHaye who heard about Wheaton's memorial service, and he wrote this letter to the president of Wheaton College, stated May 23rd, 1968. Tim LaHaye wrote to the president of Wheaton, Dear Sir, recently this report came into my hands and I find it very difficult to believe. It seems incredible that a Christian college could participate in honoring an outright theological liberal heretic whose nonviolent demonstrations have resulted in the deaths of 17 people. As a pastor, I'm asked every year by parents and prospective students to express my sentiments of Wheaton College. In all fairness, I would like to know if this article accurately describes the fact. I honestly will be quite delighted if you can say no. Sincerely yours, Tim F. LaHaye, pastor. Some of you recognize that name because Tim LaHaye went on to write the best-selling Christian book series of all time called Left Behind. It sold 65 million copies. He was one of the most influential leaders in the religious right. And you can see how he felt about Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. So once again, Martin Luther King Jr. and, and Cesar Chavez were Christians who spoke out against injustice and they were motivated by their faith. Cesar Chavez, who was born here in, in Arizona, in Yuma, united farm workers, and he founded the National Farm Workers Association that eventually moved its headquarters into an abandoned Pentecostal church. And, and uh, he ended his 25-day hunger strike by taking communion, sitting next to Senator Robert Kennedy. And Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this telegram to Cesar Chavez in, in 1968. He said, you stand today as a living example of the Gandhian tradition with its great force for social progress and its healing spiritual powers. My colleagues and I commend you for your bravery, salute you for your indefatigable work against poverty and injustice, and pray for your health and your continuing service of one of the, uh, as one of the outstanding men of America. Once again, you see a tale of two Christianities. And so what do we do? Those of us who are, are white Christians, how do we respond to the history that we see between American Christians and racism in this country? What can we do about it? If you're like me, you, you learn history, not the whitewashed history that some are trying to, uh, to accomplish here, but you learn real American history and you're cut to the heart. And you're challenged and, 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 and you feel the Spirit of God saying to you, I want to speak out for something better than the history that I see. I want to join with those voices in the past who spoke out for justice. What can we do? Well, last year we had a guest speaker here at the well named uh, Carrie Connolly. And she's the author of a book called Good White Racist. It's a, it's a hard-hitting title. It gets to the point of the book is that there are lots of white Christians in America who don't want to be racist. They, they're, they're, they're not racist, or at least they, they don't want to be. And at the same time, they don't know what to do, or maybe they, maybe they think it's good enough to just say, well, I'm not a racist, and, and, and I'm not going to participate in that. And, and they think that's enough to confront 
the reality of racism in America. And, and Kerry Connolly makes the point that it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to be a, a white moderate Christian and, and just not rock the boat, decide that you're not racist, but you don't really want to rock the boat and, and create any kind of an issue with some of your white Christian friends who might harbor some racist sentiment. She said that's not enough. The point that she makes in the book is that all of us, white Christians and people of color, our challenge is to become anti-racist, to become the kind of people who intentionally work against racism, that we decide it's not good enough to just be passive and decide that we're not going to be racist ourselves, but to intentionally work against racism and to become an anti-racist. Here during Black History Month, we're reminded of, of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail in which he expressed his disappointment in the white moderate and in churches who, who were silent during the, the, the violence uh, committed towards marchers and, and the jailing of Martin Luther King Jr. And he wrote, I, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the, the white moderate. And he goes on to say, I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. So what does it look like to become an anti-racist? What does it look like for us as a church to become anti-racist? Well, first it looks like educating ourselves, talking about it, listening to others' experience, and, and learning, and being willing to not consider whitewashed history, but the real history of the United States. And then for us as a church, becoming anti-racist looks like valuing diversity to the extent that we value visible diversity in leadership. The upfronters that you see in leadership of our service, reflecting the diversity of our area and the diversity of our church. Being anti-racist means speaking up in favor of non-discrimination, actually using our voice and, and our actions to speak against racism and to speak on behalf of justice. Had the honor of, of being invited to participate in a non-discrimination forum this coming Wednesday in the city of Chandler. Somebody with the city of Chandler contacted me and said, I think you should apply to be a part of this forum. And, and Chandler is one of the largest cities in Arizona to not have a non-discrimination law on the books. There are other cities in our area, of course, Phoenix and, and Scottsdale and Mesa, Tucson, Flagstaff, who have non-discrimination laws. And Chandler does not have a non-discrimination non law at this point. And, and, and so why was I invited? Because a white Christian male pastor can use my privilege to speak up for justice to speak up for non-discrimination. That's a privilege and a calling 
that all of us have. That's something that we can do. On the church Facebook page, I, I posted a link. And if you live in Chandler or you own a business in Chandler, you can make your voice heard. You can click on that link and, and comment on the, the city of Chandler's page uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's one of the ways that you can become an anti-racist is to speak out in favor of justice and non-discrimination. The Chamber of Commerce here in Chandler supports a non-discrimination clause because they know discrimination is bad for business. They represent small business and they know it's better for the city of Chandler and any city to have non-discrimination laws on the books. Most importantly, what does the Bible say? about race and inclusion. Now, of course, the biblical books were written in a particular time in a particular place. And slavery is assumed, and, and as, as some read the Bible, they want to read their own views into it and, and hold up verses that, that assume the existence of slavery in the ancient world as God's will for all time. Now, of course, there are other passages in the Bible, and uh, in parts of the Bible that, that are read frequently, that we're very familiar with, that make it clear how God feels about racism and how God feels about the people of the world. The most famous passage in the Bible comes to mind, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The Greek word for world there is cosmos. It means the world and everybody in it. John 3.16 is an inclusive verse. And then the apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Revelation chapter 7 describes a picture at the end when people who have followed Jesus Christ, who have opened their lives to God, are joined together with God for all of eternity. And Revelation 7 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who is Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here's the plain interpretation of those verses. Racists will hate heaven. The kingdom of God is made up of people from all over the world, every tribe, nation, ethnicity, language on earth. Heaven will be the most racially diverse place ever known. And it's not just about where we go when we die, but Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the kingdom of God is wherever God is allowed to lead in the here and now. And the kingdom of God is the most ethnically diverse group on the planet. Racists would hate being a part of the kingdom of God because God loves everybody. Now, the Reverend William Barber is probably the closest thing we have to Martin Luther King Jr. 
in our time. He is the pastor, he's a pastor in North Carolina, and he's the president of the North Carolina chapter of the NAACP. And in his book, The Third Reconstruction, he tells stories from his own life and from history about how the March for Equality moved forward in the past and recently in, in North Carolina and how it can in the future. And, and he writes about how people of faith and various ethnicities worked together throughout American history and more recently to bring about change. And he writes, to understand a moral movement, people who were accustomed to the language of Republican and Democrat left and right would have to first learn freedom movement history. You couldn't understand America's deep need for a third reconstruction without studying our history of partial progress, which has been met time and again by immoral acts of deconstruction. He's not talking about theological deconstruction. He's talking about people who want to tear apart society. In North Carolina, we look back to the state constitutional convention in 1867, following the Civil War, where the reverends Ashley and Hood, one white and one black, had worked tirelessly to codify the language of fusion politics in our state's primary legal document. Such cooperation could not have been possible if Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman had fought alone for their freedom. They built power throughout the 19th century by working with allies such as Levi Coffin, the white Quaker from Greensboro, North Carolina, who helped to establish the Underground Railroad. As Fergus Bordwich had chronicled in his epic history, Bound for Canaan, the abolitionist movement was a morally rooted, religiously inspired fusion coalition from the beginning. There has only been progress toward equality in America because people of color and white allies spoke up for what is right. And for all of us, those of us who are, are Christians uh, of color, those of us who are, who, who are white Christians, we realize that being the white moderate who doesn't rock the boat is not good enough. We want to become anti-racist. Why? Now, of course, there are folks who of no religious faith who are moved by, by human empathy and the desire to do what is right. But those of us who call ourselves Christians, we also have these declarations from our own scriptures that the kingdom of God is made up of people of every of language, tribe, ethnicity on the planet, that God so loves the world. God values diversity. God values multiculturalism. God values equality. And so do we. We're going to take communion now. And if you're uh, a part of the well, or if you're not a part of the well, uh, you're invited to take communion with us. If you're somebody who wants to say, I want to be on team God. I want to be on team Jesus. I want to love my neighbor as myself. Then, then we, we think that that qualifies you to take communion together with us. And of course, it's the perfect Sunday to take communion. Because we realize no matter what ethnicity we are, what language we speak, any other divider, we come together in union with God and with other people. And so I invite you to grab a piece of bread and a beverage. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. This is what I have. And if you want to take communion with us, go ahead and grab that uh, piece of bread and, and a beverage. And let's take communion together now. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples and he took bread and he thanked God for it. And he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. 
as often as you eat it, remember me. And so let's consume the bread now. And in the same way, he took the cup and he thanked God for it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, we thank you that as we take communion together right now, it's the perfect illustration of your heart for the world. The kingdom of God is made up of people of every language and ethnicity on the planet. God, you value diversity. You value multiculturalism. There are people who claim to follow Jesus who are really just trying to protect their own cultural views. They read their own prejudices into the Bible and then they claim that the Bible supports their prejudices. And that has created a tale of two Christianities throughout American history. We want to be a part of that second group of Christians, of, of various ethnicities who spoke up for your heart, who spoke up for justice, who spoke up for equality. And they're the ones who move this country forward. As Reverend William Barber wrote, they're the ones who made it possible to get the good things uh, that we have now. And, and there's so much farther to go because of those who misunderstand your heart. God, as Kerry Connolly wrote, we want to be anti-racist because we want to follow Jesus. We believe that you love the world and that there is no Jew nor Greek nor male or female or, or, or any other divider between us. We celebrate our differences and at the same time we know that we are all one in the kingdom of God. We thank you that we are included. And God, we, we thank you for your privilege and, and, and your challenge to speak up and be anti-racist so that all can be included. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen.